to uh, jump to the uh, end goal, what a useful practice looks like during and after a situation where we are activated is three stages in essence. I could blow it out to four, but I'll just keep it three because those tend to be more memorable. Which is, you know, you're with a roommate, a loved one, a family member, somebody you work with, and they are doing something that makes you feel unappreciated or uh, seems uncaring. For example, you work very hard on a project all weekend long, you come into work and instead of uh, giving you any acknowledgement, somebody simply jumps into criticizing your work or uh, a roommate who doesn't participate in some chores uh, uh, accuses you of not doing the chores that they want to be done. Uh, a parents or a loved one gives all kinds of unwanted and vaguely hostile suggestions. Fill in the blank. I'm sure you know what uh, difficult interpersonal experiences looks like and what it feels like to be activated. So the first step is to disengage. Disengage means whether we're the type to immediately through hypervigilance or through rage or through uh, aggression, immediately jump in and react to any perceived slight to pull away, to get to a safe place, or conversely, if we are of the type, to shut down, to feel ourselves becoming less and less empowered to speak, to interact, to uh, protect ourselves, to state our needs, to disengage, to go away from the trigger, and to then when we find a safe place, first use some of the common techniques that I introduced in uh, tonight's meditation or other common techniques you, you, you know of. Some people might, in addition to the four-eight breath, where we make the out-breath really long, or the, the abdominal breath, we might visualize a safe place or visualize somebody that makes us feel really safe and protected. Um, you might repeat the metaphrases, may I feel happy, may I feel safe. Any of those practices to begin to deactivate. Um, and it's important to know, to develop some internal awareness of you know, when you are feeling uh, activated. There'll be some telltale signs. If we are the kind that feel prone to aggressive reactions or rage or immediate uh, defensiveness, we'll feel this energy in the chest arising, this feeling of, I can't be with this, this shall not stand, uh, this feeling of needing to get something out, to expel something, and it will feel like this energy moving up the body. On the other hand, if we are the type to dissociate or shut down or essentially uh, our childhood left us feeling that we couldn't successfully in any way protest uh, injustice, 
of people around us, what we'll feel is ourselves moving further and further back into our heads, and the world will seem to get slightly further and further away, and we'll feel this tightness maybe in the throat, this feeling of, I can't say anything. So maybe you know either of these feelings, or maybe you know both, uh, but they're kind of telltale, and there's other signs when we are uh, activated as well, but those tend to be amongst the two most popular the second stage then is to not directly go in and um, address the issue, but then to disclose it. And that means first you can disclose it to yourself, which means to ask the emotional mind, okay, how did that felt? What needs to be felt? And to sit and observe the rage or the sadness or the feeling of discomfort that arises when we feel picked on, unappreciated, unloved, uncared for, abandoned. Um, and the second part of disclosing is finding a secure spiritual connection, a friend, somebody, a therapist, someone who you can trust and talk to, who will serve two purposes. One, they will either normalize or they will validate the experience. So what does that mean? Validate means, you're right, that's a terrible thing you just had to go through. I don't know how you put up with it. That sounds really, you know, awful. I'm so, you know, I would, I would have left too if I was in that situation. Normalizing, though, on the other hand, is, eh, everybody's boss is kind of stupid and, you know, that's not unusual. That's par for the course. So, you know, you start dating someone and then we become upset very quickly because they're not doing something that we expect. And so we call up a friend who's, you know, in a secure relationship. And you say, hey, I just started dating this person and this is what happened. And you ask, does that sound to you, is that something that you can, uh, you can validate my outrage or will you normalize the experience for me? And then uh, we also need someone to regulate us in either event. Regulate means someone who will help us establish a kind of uniform uh, demeanor that allows us to act in a useful way for ourselves, which means, in other words, if you're really upset and I hear something that you share your experience and I say, yeah, that's really painful, but still my demeanor, my voice, my nonverbal cues, I'll be giving you my body language, will in some way uh, tamp down your emotional outrage to a place where you can not quit your job or, you know, quit your housing or, you know, break up with your partner or cut off all relationships with your mother or whatever. You know, something where I'm essentially helping you get to a place where you're feeling your feelings but not to a degree where you're going to sabotage yourself. So that's regulation and there's a whole lot of good science around it. You can read the works of Peter Fanaghi and all those. And the Buddha spoke endlessly about the role of Kalyanamita, uh, seeking wise spiritual friends when we feel, when we're suffering. It's like one of his dominant themes. 
Uh, in fact, he said in one sutta that there is no spiritual path without wise spiritual friends. So they play an essential role. And the final stage is discuss. Not demand, but discuss. Uh, discuss means going into the person who's triggered, activated, who's done something that we felt was uh, inappropriate. And we say in a very simple language, when this happens, I feel blank. So when I come home and there's towels all over the floor and uh, uh, nobody has... Yeah, all the cereal's been eaten and not replaced. I don't know. I'm making this stuff up. I can only come up with so many decent uh, examples. But you get the idea. You say, when this happens, I feel unappreciated. I feel unseen. I feel uncared for. I feel like there's an unequal distribution of labor. I don't know how you're going to put it. <laughs> you just put it in language that expresses your feelings. What we don't do is we say, you schmuck you're terrible, or how dare you, or what's the matter with you, or, you know, the, essentially, the, the tendency that, as Gottman and a lot of good uh, relational therapists have pointed out, creates defensiveness. Blame is one of the, mo the major uh, highways to getting other people to stonewall, which means to back away and not talk with us, or to defend themselves, which means, well, then you do this. So why are you talking to me about that? Because you do this. And of course, then we get nowhere, because if you have any history with somebody, they can always point to some stuff that you've done in the past. And it's kind of the standard way that couples get nowhere, or relationships get nowhere, which is one person says, you do this, and the other person goes, well, you do that. So what we want to avoid is, is that spiral by essentially saying, I feel, which immediately doesn't make it about you, it makes it about me, I feel this in this situation. So I, I'm at, when I'm at work, and I work all weekend long, and I come in, and immediately the first thing I hear is criticism, I feel unappreciated. That doesn't say, you are a terrible boss, you should know better, blah, 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 you know, you're a terrible colleague, it's just I feel this in this situation. Most people will get it, that you're asking, you're requesting that they do something differently, but the language is very important if we want to get our needs met. Now, given how simple those three stages are, essentially we disengage, we feel the feelings, talk about them, and then simply put them in the simple language of I feel this when this happens, you would think that this would be a much more popular solution. After all, uh, I managed to you know, prom promote it in three steps. It's, and given how many interpersonal uh, problems and ongoing conflicts and how rampant uh, in our culture it's difficult to work through uh, conflicts, uh, clearly, for some reason, this very simple process is somehow constantly being sabotaged. In fact, uh, fear works in three ways that sabotage these steps. One, it creates the urge to avoid the person who's triggering us, which you know very well. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then to seek numbing distractions, 
you know, rather than to feel our feelings. And those twin, or if we don't seek numbing distractions, we might fall into the warm, soupy morass of self-pity and loathing. Well, it's my fault. I always pick the wrong people anyway. I made the mistake of studying this when I should have majored in that in college. So it is my fault, after all. And so those tendencies, of course, get in the way. Essentially, the, the, the derailing process looks like this. One, somebody does something that we really don't like. Say, A does something that we really don't like. I don't know why I'm putting my hand there. It's not as if you can't follow along with me, but I'm going to do it anyway because somehow it feels, makes me feel clearer about all this. So A does something that I don't like, and it creates the feeling of discomfort, fight, flight, or freeze. I want to either you know, say something or do something. Uh, after, even after I felt the feelings, I want to talk about it, but I just avoid the other person because something in essentially our past has created the expectation that trying to work through uh, uh, disappointing events will get us nowhere. Now, there's a reason why we have this belief. It's called childhood. <laughs> We've all grown up in power, unequal power settings where adults had more power than we had and they had the right to basically make final decisions and to say, well, it's our roof, you have to go along with what we do, etc. You've heard your own version of it. And basically, so we all are trained and spent our most formative years, which form our emotional expectations in the right hemisphere, in settings where we are not on an equal footing, and where essentially we go in asking for permission rather than feeling that our rights are equal and valid. And so our expectations are formed by early experiences where we are not truly heard and not on an uh, equal setting. And this creates the tendency first to avoid the other because we all have in the emotional recesses of the unconscious mind these inner, what Bowlby called inner working models, internal working models that are expectations of how other be others behave. We deeply believe that one, that our needs will not be met. And so what we'll do is we uh, will avoid, we will stay under the radar, we will try to navigate so that we don't see the other person. And let's face it, we live in a culture that makes avoidance coping mechanisms very easy. When I grew up, I love this part where I get to sound old. I'm only 55, but I like to say these kind of things. When I grew up, there wasn't this texting thing. When you had to break up with someone, you had to get on the phone. <laughs> and you had to actually talk to a human voice, and even that was considered to be lame. Really, in my day, you had to... Uh, <laughs> You had to actually go to somebody and say, you know what, this isn't working out. And it wasn't very pleasant, it was difficult, but guess what? Because we did things in person directly, we didn't do what's known as ghosting, which apparently is the uh, disappearing into the uh, 
the ether of the internet, just you know, not responding anymore to texts or to posts or anything. Uh, when you develop the skills of actually going through a difficult conversation, it builds a muscle of being able to withstand uncomfortable situations. And when you have that skill, you can do it more and more. On the other hand, when we give into avoidance coping, which is we tend to avoid a difficult conversation or a person who's triggering, avoidance spreads like pollution. It doesn't, it doesn't respect property lines. It just spreads across everywhere and it goes into every single corner of our life. For example, people who started out simply avoiding going out during one time of day or avoiding a certain group of people can wind up literally, and this is not an exaggeration, agoraphobic. I've actually read case studies of agoraphobic people and it often starts out as a very simple basic avoidance strategy that grows over time into fully fledged agoraphobia. That's because avoidance strategies add a lot of stress and suffering to our life. They, and furthermore, they don't work. Why don't they work? Well, let's investigate. If you've been wounded by someone and you feel mistreated and you are avoiding them, not only do you have the emotional activation of woundedness, but now you're adding what's called cognitive overload. You're adding to the, your emotional or mental landscape also the demand, not only that you feel the feelings, but you've got to avoid that other person. You can't see them. You can't be near them. And very often this will entail people, not just people in your neighborhood that's easy to avoid, but it will involve loved ones, roommates, co-workers, bosses, family members, you name it. It will involve people that you cannot avoid, that it will cause enormous stress in your life if you rely on avoidance as your vehicle to deal with wounding experiences. Don't do it. <laughs> it doesn't work. It ravages self-confidence. And in fact, in my experience of 10 years of working one-on-one -on -one with people, by far and away, it's one of the most crippling practices or behavioral tendencies that people have that uh, leads to really, really bad outcomes. The ability to walk, to not avoid someone after we feel feelings, we've talked about them, we've deflected, we've, uh, sorry, we've disengaged, we've uh, discussed it with other people, then we go and we simply say, look, this is what I feel in this situation. When we learn how to do that, it builds up so much resilience, so much empowerment to deal, not just with difficulties interpersonally, but with all kinds of social injustices, all kinds of you know, injustices in the workplace, etc. Now, the second technique that gets in the way is numbing strategies. Uh, numbing strategies are essentially seeking things that give you a dopamine rush. A dopamine rush is the reward for consuming, purchasing, acquiring, watching, all the looking at, uh, you know, the phone or the screen or the Facebook, all these, I'm sounding really old now, the Facebook, 
the Facebook, you know. Uh, anyway, so all of that uh, essentially avoid, uh, is another form of avoidance. It's simply what we're doing is we're masking the feelings of woundedness and sadness, abandonment, disappointedness. We're wounding with a very short-term boost of self-confidence that comes from buying or shopping or acquiring and it doesn't work either. It doesn't address the relational um, problems that are going on. It's not a solution. So uh, if we find ourselves in the tendency of whenever we feel hurt by someone who doesn't respond to a text or respond to a call or who is showing up an hour later, whatever your experience is, the desire to soothe yourself by seeking pseudo-connections on Facebook, it's not going to work. What will work is discuss is um, disclosing the feeling to other people and then discussing it with the person who's activated you. Now, the third practice that undermines us is called in uh, clinical psychology, I love this one, affect, affect forecasting. Affect forecasting is that we tend to have a really... Um, exaggerated fear of conflict. And we tend to also have, uh, sell ourselves really short on how um, durable we are. We tend to overlook the fact that as adults, we are far more resilient to conflict than we were as children. Interestingly enough, when people um, forecast the emotional skills of other people, they tend to be more accurate because they'll base their forecasts on how the person has been acting recently. But when you unconsciously judge how damaging or wounding a conflict will be, a difficult conversation will be, you won't base it on your present day abilities. You will base it on the early life experiences of a child feeling wounded by its parents. It's not your fault. We all do it. It's a human tendency that leads to maladaptive practices in our interpersonal life. We tend to dread talking about difficult subjects with other people because, guess what, in our first 18 years, it maybe didn't go that well. So it's understandable that we feel a reluctance, but it doesn't help us. What we need to remember is, of course, what's known as emotional effinescence, which means our emotions as adults pass. If you don't stick in the story, which simply re-triggers them over and over, and you feel your emotions, they arise, they pass. They don't linger. So, what do we do? How do we develop the confidence to face conflicts? Well, it boils down to a few practices. One, develop confidence in our ability, our durability. Remind ourselves, and not intellectually, but I'll talk about the practice, that we are not anymore children interacting with adults or parents or people that have more power than us. Literally remind the mind that we are now fully entitled adults that can choose our, that deserve as much love and care as anyone else, and that we don't have to beg or plead for our, um, to get uh, human decency to us. Two is to use our practice to recognize 
that the emotions that we'll feel during a conflictual conversation are nowhere near as lasting as we'll believe. And three, practice not ruminating about the conversations before they happen. All three are essential. Now, the first, develop the confidence. I've already given you a big hint, which is don't use texting for any argument, for any conflict. It doesn't matter if the other person wants to use texting. Don't. Don't engage with them. If you're in a partnership, a friendship, a relationship, a working relationship, a family relationship with somebody who wants to talk about anything other than I'll meet you at 8th Street at 8 o'clock, anything beyond that message, don't do it. Simply type back, I'll talk about this on the phone, but not here. And if they go, why, 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 don't respond. That's it. One message, you're out. Now, I know that this sounds harsh, but trust me, <laughs> this is my job. This is what I've done <laughs> my entire working life for the last 10 years is help people develop the tools to work through the tendencies to avoid or skirt or feel disempowered in stating their needs. And the first step is not using uh, asynchronous messaging to, to insist on our right to speak directly in person or at the very least on the phone or nice medium in between Skype. So um, practice difficult conversations with friends. Have them play, have them play you and you play uh, the person and have them show you other different ways that you could address the issue, or you play yourself and they play the difficult person. Practicing interpersonally is very good. Practicing in your own mind, not good. Mm -hmm. That leads, in fact, to simply repeating the same thing over and over again. And what rumination does is it's self-fulfilling. It actually will make us far more defensive. As we become defensive, we'll become more and more incapable of stating our feelings clearly in a very concise way, will physically and non-verbally cue them to the fact that we are frightened or angry, and fr frankly, fear looks like angry, anger anyway when you're in a conversation with somebody. So preparing the conversation, running it over again and again in your mind, not helpful, but preparing it with someone else, helpful. Um, Collecting healthy narcissistic supplies. That's an idea from Fran, uh, Heinz Kohut, a great uh, therapist. The Buddha also talked about it. Essentially, this is uh, summarized in his practice, um, Sila Nusati and um, Deva Nusati, which means reflecting on your goodness, your kindness, your generosity, the skills you've developed, your worthiness. So you don't go in to the conversation feeling emotionally disempowered or unworthy or a child asking for love from a recalcitrant or withholding parent. You feel like an adult going in and saying, hey, in this situation, we each deserve kindness, compassion, and I don't feel I'm getting it. 
that's basic. To give ourselves permission to do that, we need to have a healthy sense of narcissism. There's unhealthy narcissism where you can never get enough, narcissistic supplies where you constantly need to have other people reinforce the fact that you're worthy and good and intelligent. And there's healthy narcissistic supplies, which is simply when somebody says something nice to you, let it soak in, stay with it for a moment or a few moments, because it takes much longer for positive experiences to sink into our memory banks than negative ones. Really, really soak in the positive, the good. And then, of course, reflect on our experiences in the past, the times you went through conflicts and you've shown up for them, and that, in fact, you're no longer reeling from them today. If you reflect on the fact that many conflicts in your life you have successfully navigated, whether they ended up in a redefined relationship or cutoff, where you've decided the other person simply cannot be worked with, simply reminding yourself that you're not as vulnerable as your emotional mind believes. And affect and permanence is simply, once again, in your meditation, bringing up, at times, the difficult experiences, feeling the feelings without telling the story. Just ask yourself, how, does it, how did it feel today when that person said blah, blah, blah? And that's it. That's it with the story. And just then awareness of the body, feeling the feelings in the body. All of these practices allow us to develop the tools to, instead of avoiding or numbing our feelings or to disempowering ourselves by having false ideas of how uh, vulnerable we are, these are the tools that allow us to show up and uh, essentially show up for ourselves and to uh, really find ways to communicate our needs safely. Uh, in another talk uh, coming up soon, I'm going to be going into uh, other ways to, in those actual conversations, how to address issues. But for today, I think that's enough information. I hope you got something worth thinking about. So, finding that nice upright position that feels sustainable for you and uh, one simple trick is to just tilt the head slightly uh, upwards, like you're looking at a tall building. Not too tall, but so you feel your chin raising up uh, a few inches. And what that does is it keeps the head from, from floating in front of the body. A lot of the monks I've studied with, when you first sit with them, you notice that they're, uh, they have a kind of demeanor where their body looks very open and their head seems to be looking slightly upwards, which is simply a way to keep ourselves from doing this, you know, where the head just falls in front of the body. And just that little bit of effort is enough to keep us alert and present and... Uh, balanced, and then everything else, just really relax. Just find as comfortable position as you can, and uh, don't worry about your posture per se. 
So relax into uh, the feeling of sitting. And then what we're going to do is um, today work on a bunch of the basic soothing and grounding techniques of the path. Before we start with those techniques, let's just close the eyes and um, we'll take three breaths together. And if you'd like, you can follow the instructions. So with the first in-breath through the nose, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. Hold it for a couple of beats and then breathe out through the mouth and drop the shoulders as heavily as they can. And then a nice pause between the breath. And then the next breath, what happens is we pull in the belly, tighten the belly so that you feel your waistline decreasing and then breathe out through the mouth and soften the belly. And then as we approach the third breath, Whatever muscles you'd like to tighten, your face, your toes, your fingers, your buttocks, your thighs, your anything you want, just tighten it, tighten it, tighten it, and then release. So the in-breath is associated with enlivening and awareness, and the out-breath is associated with ease and release. So the first breath we'll do is, um, and if you'd like in this moment, by the way, just see if there's anything you can do to make the body more comfortable. So if your belt's too tight, your clothes too tight, you're sitting in a slightly awkward way, really be, take a moment to be kind to yourself. For the rest of this meditation, if you feel physically uncomfortable and you need to reposition yourself, that's okay. Just try to do it in a way that um, doesn't make too much noise. With the exception of Craig, who's sitting in the loud chair. <laughs> Nothing he can do about it. <laughs> well, I've sat in that chair a couple of times. It amplifies everything. So, um, our first breath will be a breath where the first of three breaths to establish calm, and this is the 4-8 breath. And it's a very simple technique of counting to four in your in-breath, and then hold and then count to eight on the out-breath. And what we're doing, obviously, is we're making the out-breath twice as long as the in-breath. With the 4-8 breath, it's better to breathe out through the nose if that's available and as smooth a stream of air as you can. The longer the out-breath, essentially deactivates 
or helps deactivate certainly parts of the midbrain that activate that create anxiety, fear, stress. So the simple lengthening of the out breath as long and smooth as you can basically sends a message to very uh, old parts of the brain that says I'm okay, I'm safe, I can relax. So the second breath is what we call belly breathing. And essentially what this involves is not breathing using the rib cage or chest as much as the active sensations in the body correspond with the abdominal muscles. If you want to know if you're doing it, very simply you can put a gentle hand on your belly and one on your chest, of course, and then if you feel your belly expanding with the in-breath and then releasing with the out-breath, that's the goal. So feel a gentle movement and obviously if your top hand focusing on the chest, if it feels that you're moving your chest more than your belly, then focus your attention on just releasing the muscles in the belly as you breathe in, and then slightly pulling them contracted as you breathe out. It's as if you're pulling in the breath by the belly and then expelling it. Although the energy we're looking for is not one of pushing or pulling, but more of uh, on the in-breath, as the belly expands, a feeling like we're allowing in the breath. And then on the out-breath, as the belly releases, there's a, a sense of just the breath being allowed back out. Very soft, very subtle. Mostly this is about pulling awareness down into the body. And of course, in life, when we feel ourselves breathing heavily through the chest, it means we're excited, stressed, busy. When 
in life we feel ourselves breathing through the belly, it generally means that we're calm. So what we're doing with these meditations is we're developing what's known as bottom-up practice where you're changing the body to then change the mind. So the third type of relaxing breathing is mentioned in all of the suttas about the breath and the canon. It's known as full body breathing, anapana puripanya. Essentially, the easiest way to practice this is to, on the in-breath, place your awareness at the very lowest point in your body, your feet. And then as you breathe in, feel the energy or scan upwards through the body as if you're following a flowing of energy of the breath moving up till you reach uh, roughly that area that some people refer to as the third eye, essentially your forehead. And then as you breathe out, feel the sense of starting in that area, a sense of ease, relaxing, like a shower of awareness dripping down the body with the out-breath all the way back down, even down out through the bottom of your feet into the floor beneath you, and then the breath returns back once again flowing up through the body. So what would it feel like if the breath was not only uh, literally translated as uh, providing oxygen to the body, but really a sense of energy flowing all the way up, bringing awareness to the entire body, lighting it up, and then the exhalation was this very slow, peaceful scanning, releasing down the body. In this breath, the role is to really integrate the entire body awareness, which the Buddha proposed was very important in establishing calm and balance in life.
So for our fourth tool in cultivating calm, we'll use some of the practices of present time awareness, which are very effective. Generally in life, so many of the triggers that uh, activate stress and hypervigilance involve the behavior of other people. And so having a tool that grounds us in the present sensation that doesn't involve what other people are doing, how they're acting, allows us to find some peace. So in this practice, first start out with employing the mind's awareness, even when our eyes are closed, of what it feels is going on directly around the body. You actually have a lobe of your brain that doesn't only feel into the actual body but presents a kind of unconscious feeling about what directly surrounds you, whether you can relax or whether you should stay guarded. So starting with the front of the body, just see if you can notice the muscle groups and see if you can soften into the space around you essentially reassuring the front of the body that there's nothing to protect yourself from, there's no threats, you're safe. You can let go of that tendency to keep the chest a little locked or the belly a little tight, just softening into the space directly in front. And this is a felt exercise, not a visual one, so don't visualize what's in front of you so much as just feel yourself softening into the space directly in front. And then moving awareness to the back of the body. In our culture we have a lot of phrases like watch one's back, cover one's back, etc. And they mean there's this general feeling that we can't relax if we don't know what's going on. So see if we can soften into the idea that there's nothing behind us to worry about, that we're safe. We're in a space with a lot of caring people that have no interest to do any harm. So we can really give ourselves permission to soften the muscles in the upper back, the shoulders, the back of the neck. And then following this practice with the left and the right, the left arm just feeling it, relaxing the left hip and knowing that there's nothing threatening to your left and then there's nothing threatening to your right, so letting the right shoulder drop, the right arm and fingers release. So really allowing the body to soften into the space around you as if you really deeply know that you no longer have to defend or protect or worry about anything around you.
And then next, bring your awareness to the temperature of the body. Does the body feel warm or cool? If it does feel warm, which areas feel warm? For example, the forehead. And if it does, just see if you could imagine what it would feel like to breathe into that area and slightly cool it. If, on the other hand, there's an area of the body that feels cool or cold, what would it be like if the out-breath could move through it and warm it? For instance, the muscles in the top of the back. So just scan around the perimeter of the body, noting signs of heat and cool, or alternatively signs of contraction, and just after you observe an area, see if you can slightly address it. And then move our awareness down to the sensations of contact with the ground. Feeling the blurring of knowing where your body ends and the floor begins or the seat begins. If your palms are resting on your legs, feeling that contact. So, again, all of these awarenesses are detaching us from our preoccupation with the world around us and bringing awareness back again and again to sensations that ground us internally. And then finally as well, if you'd like, you can add in awareness of the sounds as they arrive to the ears, but don't visualize what's going on in the world to create those sounds. Just hear the sounds as if you're listening to a set of headphones that are playing you in audio environment. Just hear the changing of sound textures. spiritual practice is to provide us with a way of being with our internal experience that's caring, compassionate, that soothes agitation, 
that hears emotional distress and listens to it. When we have a spiritual practice, we don't react to other people, we respond. Because we have a grounding internal awareness that helps us detach from our competitive natures or at least the mind's default settings which are to compete and look for happiness externally. If you have a spiritual practice you'll be less competitive. You'll be more aware. You'll have more internal tolerance for yourself. And so this practice is not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of all beings. So it's worth cherishing. And I'm going to ring the bowl, and I encourage you, rather than to simply open your eyes and look around, which will effectively toss away all of the awareness we've just cultivated, to very slowly, very slowly open the eyes, looking down, not at other people first, allow the sensations of sight to begin to flow into awareness. If we look around, just sight is so visually interesting that of, of course it'll push away awareness of the body emotions moves the breath so see if you can just slowly allow the shapes and colors to enter awareness and then to find a good balance between how you feel internally and what you see and hear externally <laughs> 